Hello, my name's Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, from Keep Off the Borderlands. But you're not listening to any of that nonsense. Oh no, you're listening to Roleplay Rescue. Jay's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack I want to come back to the dice whoa, 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 whoa. I think I need some good advice I need a roleplay rescue Oh yeah I need a roleplay rescue Oh yeah Oh yeah Hello rescuers, my name is Che Webster and you're listening to Roleplay Rescue the podcast about rediscovering our passion for tabletop role-playing games. Today is the first of two extended conversations that I've shared with some of my gaming luminary friends over the course of a week or so, focused on answering some practical questions around the barriers I've long experienced in running consistent campaigns. These conversations were largely unplanned and are really just that, hopping online to talk and discuss, basically share some key ideas with my guest, and we thought we'd share them with you. The first conversation was with John Four, the founder of RoleplayingTips.com, which began as a GM Tips newsletter, but throughout the years John has published GM Advice column in Dragon Magazine, several books about how to improve your GMing, and continues to write on the topic of running better games. John is perhaps best known for the Five Room Dungeon, and this was where we began our conversation, although we moved deeply on and by the end of the conversation John helped me unlock my own confidence in preparing my new fantasy campaign. So let's get into it. This is season 12, episode 18, Adventure Building with John Four. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome, John, back to Roleplay Rescue. Good to have you back on. How's things? Uh, things are good. Thanks for um, setting yourself up for more John rambling. Uh, you are a brave person. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. What I wanted us to do is talk today about a bit more about Five Room Dungeon, I suppose, which is um, kind of your thing. Uh, but I think following on from our last conversation, I was very interested in, and of course, some of the more recent um, role playing tips. Yeah, role playing tips. That's the one. The role playing tips newsletter. Uh, with some recent episode or issues of that that have come out, talking about you know using Five Room Dungeon as a Five Room adventure sort of structure, really. And and I think you've talked a little bit about using them within the concept you know concept of a mega dungeon you've also talked about them using them in a sort of campaign world so i'm in the process of setting up a new campaign so i thought hey what a brilliant opportunity to talk to the absolute expert on a subject um and find out a little bit more so yeah i i just think i know we talked in our last uh, conversation a little bit about what they are but i think what would be really good is to have a conversation about how to set one up how to run one and some of the th- learning you've had over the last what is it? Twenty or so years, so you know, plenty of <laughs> plenty of stuff to talk about. And I also know that you've got a kind of workshop going at the moment um, with a bunch of GMs. So I imagine that's giving you loads and loads of great ideas as well. Yeah, some good feedback coming out of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I penned the technique in two thousand and three. So does that make it the uh, the twentieth uh, anniversary this year? It does. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> we can tell by our our hair. Our, our <laughs> <right> here, yeah. <laughs> yeah it doesn't get doesn't get any less gray let's put it that way 
So, John, just um, just tell us a little bit first of all about Five Room Dungeon. Um, I know we've spoken a bit about in the past about its origin, um, and what it is, but it'd be, I guess, just good to quickly recap that, and then maybe talk about a little bit about its versatility. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I, I created because I just wanted a consistent way to create adventures for every session. And uh, I wanted it to be a fast and efficient way. I was tired of just setting down, sitting down at a, at a prep session or when I was starting to prep and uh, just having kind of blank page syndrome. Like, okay, I need an adventure for next session. I need an adventure for this campaign. Um, what do I want? And um, past efforts to copy the format for published adventures, though I didn't quite understand why at the time failed. Um, you know, I've since learned that those are technical resource documents. The published adventure, uh, say from Wizards of the Coast, is uh, they have two purposes, to sell the book to entertain readers mm. and to convey information from one designer's mind to a game or from the designers to the game masters. So you need mm. all that extra stuff because they can't talk and say, hey, what's this room about? What's the theory of that? And why? Did... So you have a lot of th- uh, text. And I just wanted a way to quickly brew adventures. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a big uh, fan of Joseph Campbell, who um, has a lot of uh, mythical story structure in his in his uh, model. And also he's backed it up with uh, years and years of academic research and I think in the field research. So I took his model, which was popularized by um, Chris Vogler, who wrote a book that I can't recall right now, where he basically revealed how Hollywood blockbusters in the 80s and 90s were using Joseph Campbell's uh, structure. Vogler's model was less academic and much more accessible to me. So I took yeah. that plus what I knew of Campbell's stuff and I distilled it down into a five room uh, adventure format, thinking mm-hmm. that would be a good enough for an evenings of uh, entertainment. So that worked out quite well. Um, and it has the advantage of it's condensed, but it's guaranteed that you're going to tell a good story if you follow them, mm-hmm. uh, the, the format. And so then we have to worry less about how do we create a story and more about GMing and being in the moment and figuring out how to extract the the best out of the moment of the gameplay. So we mm. can focus on that. And also we have a repeatable formula. So whenever we need an adventure, we just go through the formula. Um, and yeah, you're right. So a lot of uh, recent, so because I've started up a workshop, because uh, I wanted real time interaction with game masters, I wanted mm. to learn where they're, where they're getting uh, hung up on creating adventures. I use the five room dungeon format to create adventures with, but it's not the only technique out there. Uh, so I started this workshop and I'm getting some really uh, amazing feedback and ideas. And, and it's really cool seeing people work with the formula and build dungeons in, in real time, not dungeons, but adventures in real time. Mm-hmm. And that spawned a recent article, which you and I were talking about before, um, before we were talking the, um, the few myths floating around with five mm-hmm. room dungeons. Um, and I don't know if they're myths. It's just things that I've not communicated clearly enough, or uh, the idea has evolved over time in some cases. So the one thing I had mentioned was um, I regretted calling it Five Room Dungeons, or I regret calling it now Five Room Dungeons. It's really Five Room Adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so myth number one, or popular one, is it's not about dungeons. So that's my fault for calling it that. But it is a based on mythic story structure, story beats system. So mm-hmm. as long as you have at least three out of those five story beats, which I'll go into in a second, then you're guaranteed to have a really great story prepared to run. Mm-hmm. And it's not genre specific. So it can be science fiction. It can be horror, modern day, and of course, fantasy. It's not dungeon specific. It can be for wilderness, civilized encounters, up in space, deep in the center of the earth, wherever you want. 
dungeons are uh, just one type of setting. So it's been really popular uh, for that reason, as GMs you know figured that out. And then another uh, development is uh, considering them as story beats. So yeah. I, I really gleaned that out of a series of uh, conversations I had with um, Mike over at Sly Flourish. And, you know, he really focused on, yeah, if we just uh, abstract them, we can see them as um, really good ways that you could GM an encounter. A single encounter needs a uh, beginning, middle, and end. So that mm -hmm. matches the five-room dungeon format and um, and longer form adventures. And so speaking of longer form mm -hmm. adventures, um, readers have said how they have linked and connected five-room dungeons together over the years. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized that that is the perfect format uh, because I'll share with you um uh how my friend thinks of risk the board game have you tried risk the board game oh yeah have you had a table flipping moment with risk the board game <laughs> <laughs> who hasn't right <laughs> <laughs> so aggravating all those d6s are amazing but when they don't turn up in your favor again and again and again <laughs> it's just so anyways his two uh strategies for risk are coconut and rock so coconut is he puts all his armies on the perimeters of his territory so that mm -hmm. he cannot uh, he can defend basically his continent bonuses. Yeah. Um, but what the weakness is, is that an opponent can focus on one, drive a wedge and then break through. Yeah. Once you've broken through, then everything is just single army, easy mm -hmm. fodder for you to just rampage through the countryside. So that's coconut. The other is rock. So you put a little few armies on every space. It doesn't necessarily give you an, a near impenetrable border along any section, but it means that they can't just rampage and eliminate all of your territories and things like that. So mm -hmm. I consider five room dungeons in terms of larger adventure design, like that rock strategy. Mm -hmm. So instead of having say a typical adventure, say a 32 page adventure is going to have around 20, 25, 30 encounters. Yeah. Go from encounter to encounter. We kick down the door. We kill the monsters. We take their loot. Repeat. And there's not a whole lot of storytelling energy up and down peaks and mm -hmm. valleys, rising action and uh, increased drama in that format per se. But if you divide a large adventure into a number of micro stories or smaller stories, each where they have a buildup, rising action, and then they have that climactic encounter number four and so on, then your entire adventure now is built on a bunch of like Lego pieces that each intrinsically have a story baked in. And so imagine a playing experience now where you have all of these little micro stories going on in your, in your adventure instead of a series of sort of what I call gray zone encounters, just kind of mm -hmm. designed to fill up some space and then get you towards that final act. Um, so that's uh, what has evolved over the years with Five Room Dungeons. You can connect them together to make mega uh, dungeons or mega adventures, story paths like Paizo puts out, mm -hmm. huge stories like the hardcovers that Wizards puts out just by connecting these really uh, strong integrity micro stories all together. So mm -hmm. faction play, levels, areas, regions in a world, they can all be broken up into the five room dungeons. Mm -hmm. And then finally, to answer the rest of your question, I think uh, the structure. So the five room dungeon or five room adventure consists of five story beats, five encounters or rooms, as I call them in the model. The first one is entrance and guardian. Mm -hmm. So the story must have a start. That also, um, in, in general, you, your adventures normally um, have a question that you have to answer with this room one. Why hasn't the uh, adventure dungeon been looted yet? Or if it's not a dungeon, why hasn't this problem been solved yet? So if there is, uh, let's say, a terrorist out there and the characters are um, bureau agents and they're uh, hired to stop them, that's the basis of their 
So then why hasn't anyone else stopped the mm -hmm. the reign of terror before? That's what room one is about, just in an introduction to the adventure and that explanation. And then the second most important encounter in there is room four, which is your climactic finale. So we want all of our adventures, whether they're small or large, to end on a high note, some epic battle that's deadly. We don't know if we're going to win or lose, and it's really exciting, and it comes down to last roll and the best cases. So Room 4 is about completing your adventure on a high note. Look at any book that you love, any TV series, any movie. They they always build up to rising action, and then it, all the chips come down, and uh, all the chips are on the table at that point in that Room 4. Room 5 is your denouement, which is the end. It is um, the treasure you get. It is a revelation, perhaps, if you're in a campaign that opens up a secret, that opens up new gameplay. Mm -hmm. uh, and quite often it's a twist, especially if you're running a one-shot. The twist at the end in room five helps you recast the, the whole five-room dungeon. Oh, it was this way after all. And then you have those refrigerator moments where, oh, the GM put this, you know, the, this encounter. Oh, it makes sense because of the twist now. And those are really cool uh, player moments, those, um, those surprises. And then rooms two and three in the middle are about role-playing. Uh, so room two is a uh, role-play or puzzle, and sometimes mm -hmm. you can do both. And that's to hit another kind of pillar of uh, our particular hobby. So mm -hmm. maybe a video game would be less about role-play in room two. But in general, in mythical story structure, you, you, you meet mentors, guides, and helpers. And sometimes they're in the form of enemies who accidentally reveal something, rivals who you get some kind of temporary cooperation with, or mm -hmm. um, an actual ally. And they give you signposts and signals of how to defeat and, and you know, get through the rest of the adventure. So in mythical story structure, that's what room two is about. And finally, room three is a trick or a setback. Room four, if, if you recall from uh, 15 seconds ago, is about our climactic finale for the adventure. So we want to hit it on the high note. But we don't want our players fully rested, coming in cocky and with confidence and absolutely no fear of the outcome of room four. We want them to feel like, wow, I'm, we're going to sneak up on smog here. Is this the best idea? Are we going to live to tell the tale? Uh, so room three is about setting that up, teeing that ball up. And so you want to create fear, uncertainty and doubt in your players just before they beat or meet the, the big bad evil person in your dungeon or whatever the, your final climactic conflict is. And so we want room three to just in, get them through a, either a complication. So now things are a little bit more difficult or they suffer some kind of loss. Like it could literally be, literally be a character loss, but we don't aim for that. It could be they're out of the best level spells or they're no longer have any healing potions or you've already used all of your powerful actions that you were bequeathed the day. It all depends on the game. Yeah, but you've suffered a little bit of an injury there, knocking you off your, wow, this is going to be easy, a cakewalk sense. And the players now... You know, you like you want them. They're full of t attention and and they're they're excited, but concerned about the outcome. So those are the five rooms uh, in not so much of a nutshell. Okay, so I guess the first sort of thing I always uh, thought about with this that, that's great, like as in a five step adventure, if you like, and especially for like a one shot. Um, but it sounds really linear, and it sounds quite you know limiting. Um, so how do you um, overcome that kind of i mean obviously if you did that the same way every time that becomes repetitive so you're going to shake yeah. it up i guess but how do you make it like not linear and a little bit more dynamic so thank you for the question there a couple of different ways um we are not forced to use five rooms 
what we want is regardless of how many rooms or in reality encounters, how many encounters you have in a session or in an adventure or in an arc, um, we want to hit those five notes if possible to facilitate a variety of gameplay. So we've got puzzles and role playing and traps and things mm -hmm. uh, as well as combat and, uh, and our usual, whatever your usual default gameplay is. So we hit all the pillars, um, but we can have 25 encounters, but yeah. as long as we have those five beats, then we are setting ourselves up to be great storytellers because the mm -hmm. five beats have story baked in based on, you know, all the origins. I said, uh, Joseph Campbell did all the heavy lifting for us and, or anyone he, he referenced in his, uh, in his pursuits and research. Um, they, in general, a story does have a certain amount of linearity in a story has a beginning, a middle and an end mm -hmm. that may, might be blindingly obvious, but, um, if you're, end doesn't end on a high note for example it's not going to have as much um uh it's not going to be remembered as fondly it's not going to be one of your best the players aren't going to have as much engagement in it mm -hmm. and then afterwards so it'll be a little bit flat so uh my contention is that every five room dungeon or sorry every adventure regardless of the number of encounters mm. should have that first very um solid start and it achieves the goals that I talked about before for room one. Mm -hmm. We should have some kind of uh, climactic finale to the adventure, whether it is overcoming an obstacle or mm -hmm. it's a combat or figuring out the final piece of the puzzle under pressure. We want that room four. So that would kind of be like the middle and towards the end. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have an end. So we need what ha what's the consequences? How did our world change? How did the characters change? Uh, how does the story uh, evolve as a result of defeating whatever was in room four? Um, and then the, the twist and revelation aspect kind of puts a cap on that sense. Wow, this is a really good story. So my contention is, uh, and as you suggested in the question, we can have 20 encounters if we want, but those three are the critical ones and they kind of should be in that order. Because if you can imagine that if we have the end encounter first mm -hmm. and the first encounter at the end is a weird example, that wouldn't make sense as a story unless you're trying to really metagame hard and be uh what was that movie where the it went backwards in time memento or something anyway so uh jaded moviegoers were treated to such hard uh story engineering to keep them guessing that uh, i didn't feel it was a good experience but anyway so you know our stories have to have those three things in those orders and then what you do in the middle you can have as many combats puzzles and social encounters as you like it doesn't literally have to be five encounters. But what I do ask GMs to do is think about where and how they will execute those five story beats in their adventure. Another, so there's that's one way, and there's the second way. The second way is more campaign play. So over time, if you play three, four, five, uh, five room dungeons, you can kind of connect them together and they mm -hmm. can feed each other. So that means that they're almost like, um, I don't know. It's not fractal, but it's like it connected in a, in a like a hex map or something like that. And so you leave mm -hmm. this region and now you're in a new story. They can intertwine with each other. So I, I play mostly sandbox campaigns uh, with a mm -hmm. bit of a, a, a critical path is what I call it for my BioWare days, a crit critical story uh, path in the middle where if the players engage, there is this story, traditional story, if that's what they're looking for. And if they ignore it, then I've got a really awesome source for background events and then and making the world dynamic. Mm -hmm. I just need to figure out what the players have neglected the, the consequences of that. But if you have, let's say you're on room two of your first five room dungeon, you can add room one of your second five room dungeon as your next encounter. Mm -hmm. And you, you can scramble them up like that. And so they're each going, but you've got like 
plots within plots now. And even though it's simple for us, because it's just these five rooms, and so we just need to figure out, okay, I've got five five-room dungeons, for example, 25 encounters, I'll lay them out, and then depending on character actions, this one triggers, and then this one triggers, it's super. Mm -hmm. But from a player's perspective, because they have tight fog of war, they don't see that pattern. So they might be expecting five rooms from good old John, the uh, consistent game master, but suddenly they're, they're what they were expecting to be the next room three is the new room four, or sorry, the room one for one dungeon, or could be a room four for another arc that they have been going on. So it's sort of like how you would do a, a, a t television show. So scene one is based on this character arc. Scene two, it kind of launches the show's theme and then for the episode, and then uh, scene three, another character's arc. You go back to the other character in scene four and so on. Mixing it up means that players will not even if they know this arc is five rooms, they have no idea when the next room will trigger. So that actually gets them more engaged. Saying, mm -hmm. oh, no, no, wait, let's, let's go back here. I, I want to find that magic armor. You can really use that magic armor. Um, but, you know, you can introduce more five-room dungeons and keep them guessing because they don't know if the next encounter will really be that or something else. So those are the two ways. Campaign play means you can put them together mm -hmm. and mix them up. Or you can just have more than five rooms and um and you know flesh them out that way but i would put a caveat finally um if you have more than 10 encounters planned for your adventure i highly recommend splitting them up into uh, multiple five room dungeons two or at least have one five room dungeon and then five uh, other random uh, pockets of encounters because like i said it's hard to string together a really good story over a series of encounters like after the mm -hmm. 10th encounter you probably lost the plot or what have you if you break them up into small micro stories, you can really uh, manage the game and be effective storyteller that way. They give you such good uh, strong cues uh, and help you react to the to the players. So, mm. great. Okay, so we've got the core structure, and we know we can kind of mix it up. Uh, so, how do we get started with this? I mean, I'm starting a new campaign. You know, I've got a I've got a campaign map from the 80s. I've got a whole load of lore. I've got a bunch of random scenarios that are sort of, as you said, like written in the, you know, you've got this source book, right? you got loads of like little one scene sort of things or very simple kind of, you know, uh, tasks. Like, I don't know, they go off hunting for some creature they've got to hunt down and, and kill or, uh, you know, there's uh, they've got to go rescue somebody. Relatively simple stuff. And then you've actually got these longer sort of scenarios where they're like on on a, on a trail of some great you know, mythic item or something like that that they want to locate and find and there all sorts of clues leading that way um so you know where do you start as a gm trying to build a campaign like that so from the sounds of it you have a, a bit of a sandbox going on you don't have here's you know the 30 encounters i'm going to run them mm. And if they go off, it's impenetrable woods to the left and impenetrable mountains to the right. So um, so what I do then for sandbox creation is uh, the first thing, depending on the length of the campaign, I think you mentioned it's a GURPS and a, and a Bronze Age um, mm -hmm. genre campaign. So it sounds like that'll be um, have some legs to it. And so I figure out the treasure or what the key goals for the players are first. And mm -hmm. so if it's a D&D &D game, it's definitely treasure. So what... At, if I'm 12th level and 16th level and 20th level, what are the sets of magic items that I, I want for my players to have on their character sheets to be not only tier and game balance appropriate, but really cool? I wouldn't give a, a Vorpal Sword at first level, but you know I'd be tempted around tier three to start uh, handing those out. And so I create that list first, and then I put those magic items on the map. 
And then I drop a five room dungeon on every one of those because that answers at the meta level why those items are hard to get at, why other people haven't gotten them before. That's our room mm -hmm. one. And it's you have to adventure in our game to get the treasure, to get the best treasure at least. So I would first make my treasure um, crawl, is, as I call it. I make yep. a list of treasure and then I put it on the map. Then I create a five room dungeon around that. So the treasure is like... Um, like how rain forms. So rain in the clouds up there, they just need a little bit of dust or a piece of pollen or just a particle to form. And then the moisture builds around it, gets heavy enough, drops down. All Everyone who understands that, just tell me where I'm wrong on that. But the metaphor is we have that little bit of grain, that seed, and then the rest forms around it. So if you start with a piece of juicy treasure, you can then ask, okay, well, what, what might guard the treasure? What would be a worthy um, foe that I would need to defeat in room four? where that treasure probably is possibly in room five. I, I say room four because sometimes the, um, the guard, the, the big villain in the adventure might be using the treasure, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Otherwise it's in room five. So if you've got 15 cool magic items on a wish list, drop those into 15 places or however where you want to group them up and create uh, five room dungeons uh, for those. And then those are the seed of, of the treasure. So that's room five. What guards them? What would be the, um, a uh, reasonable kind of uh, resistance to them acquiring that mm -hmm. for your game balance purposes. That's your room four. And then what, where are they? Like, what is, is it in the mountains? Is it in a monster lair? Is it in the mayor's office? Like, where is this uh, thing? That's your room uh, one, the location. So now we have basically three of the five rooms created within moments and you just fill out uh, the rest of the encounters as you see fit. So there might be an NPC to role play in that. There might be some, obstacles, hazards, traps, alarms, defense systems, whatever have you for room three, and you kind of have it built out. And so once I've got that done to kind of wrap up your question, um, I would then follow up with uh, my three phases of five room dungeon creation. Hmm. So if you paint, figure uh, you're painting something, in general, you would um, sketch out uh, with a piece of coal or just a you know soft pencil or something, what you're going to paint on the canvas and you go through the classic, a lot of the classic paintings, you re, they restore the paint, but they can see the original sketch marks behind. Sometimes you do that because you, it's too early to worry about your brushes and your palette and all that stuff. You just need to figure out, okay, position, shaping of things, just the broad strokes, no pun intended. And then once you've got your sketch built, then you start filling it in with color. So you start filling in with the paint and stuff and you, you start building it out. Once you've done that stage, you start putting highlights on and the special touches and you make that thing like the really um, awesome work of art. So I tackle five room dungeon and adventure design in general in those three phases, which I call plot. We just went through plot with the sandbox. I want to know what the treasure is and what the big bad evil guy or monster or force is and where the location is. And that gives me enough to start building on. That's phase one, just plotting things out. Phase two, then I build out my encounters. What? Kind of monsters do I reskin? What kind of stop blocks do I need? Uh, what's the NPC's personality and this and that? So those are the details. And then the final one is polish, where I add those finishing touches. So now I've got basically um, raw material to work with. Like I see, I've got my canvas filled out, but now I look at, oh, okay, well that's kind of boring over there. I'll I'll put some some white highlights on the waves there on the crests of the waves, and over here I'll add some shadows to make that a little bit deeper and this and that. Now, to sum that up, if I were to plot, build, and polish an encounter all at once, that would be overwhelming for me, at least my small brain. I cannot 
refine something that doesn't exist and I get writer's block and anxiety if I'm already trying to think of making something that's perfect before I have any ideas. So just you know, do myself a favor, just create the skeleton, then in phase two, add the bones and the sinew, and then in phase three, dress it up, you know, give it a monocle and a top hat and some good dance moves. So plot, build, polish. And that's that's literally how I've uh, developed my old school essential sandbox campaign and how I'm plotting out um, the sequel I'm writing for the, the Demon Plague campaign. It's kind of treasure point crawl, figuring out the land, and then building my five room dungeons in um, three stages. Final thought actually is I don't, I'd leave most of my five room dungeons for a campaign just in that kind of plot mode for mm -hmm. the longest time. Cause now I have a lot of guiding information, like where is it, you know, what's there to draw rumors and foreshadowing and clues mm -hmm. from like, if there's a, a big dragon over there, I'd want the dragon's presence to be known well before the players confront the dragon in its room four. Mm -hmm. um, so by knowing our plot points in advance, we have such a huge tool set available to us. And then I don't worry about building them out and polishing and putting all that prep time until I'm pretty sure the players are going to trigger that next adventure. Because I really don't know sometimes in a sandbox if they're going to hit that dungeon when they're level two characters or level 10 characters. So I don't do too much development in advance, which is kind of common advice. But for five room dungeons, that's how I do it. I leave them in their plot stage until the last possible moment. So I'm really into exploration games. Um, you know, the one I want to offer my players often is a really deep, rich world, which is full of like interesting, you know, revelations, information, lore, uh, L O R E. Um, um, and you know, obviously they're going to go on adventures. They're going to they're going to take on challenges and all those kinds of things. But how can I best incorporate that kind of depth of world? Um, using this structure as well. I presume to start with, you know, there's an element of, well, you know, there's, I don't know, um, this magic item that's in the hills kind of thing that you've heard about. But obviously, you've got that sort of the first inklings of that. Um, but you're talking about sort of balancing out like the story beats of the adventure. And I'd like to like make sure there's plenty of clues, exploration, perhaps interaction as well going on in between. So what's your advice on sort of balancing that out and, and making it, yes, an active adventure, but at the same time, one that's going to lead to some really interesting, deep, you know, exploration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tricky stuff. Um, so is your um, purpose, so rock and, and coconut, we can use that uh, metaphor here. Is your purpose for discovery, um, which is uh, one of my keywords, uh, exploration, discovery, is your purpose for that um, is the discovery its own reward? So it's coconut. In other words, the purpose of the campaign, your room fives will ultimately be about these revelations. Or is it more like you have continual discoveries along the way to add that depth and immersion and dynamic uh, world feel? So it's more like rock. There's discoveries all along the way. Yeah. Or are you trying to build up to that huge discovery? Luke, I am your father uh, moment. That's less about world building story, but it sort of is with the whole Jedi mm. faction and stuff like that. But yeah, what's your what are you angling for there? So what I'm after is really deep, consistent other world immersion. So um, I wanted my players to be, you know, a lot of the time we shift things out of the way of the players, like some of the rules come out of the way, a lot of the um, sort of finickety stuff that a GM can handle for the players. So the players can be in character and then imagine themselves in the world. So for me, what I'm looking for, I suppose, is this this gameplay where there is this consistent dripping and dripping and dripping and dripping and dripping of information, um, yeah. which the players, I mean, 
I was reading about world building. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's an excellent book about world building. And one of the things that um, it sort of talks about, especially in sort of movies and TV series and, and novels and, and series like in that sort of stuff, is there comes a point where uh, you reach a depth of immersion because um, what happens is the player or the, the the viewer, the listener, the reader, whatever, becomes overwhelmed with the sheer amount of information there is to actually understand. So you yeah. can't possibly hold it all. And what yeah. happens is you sort of, you know, they, they use the term of immersion, but it actually starts with sort of like you paddle in and then it gets deeper and it gets deeper and eventually <laughs> it's sort of like drowning. Yeah. Um, but actually what the what the user, reader, watcher, gamer in this case uh, experiences is a sort of a sense of overwhelm. And then this it becomes kind of like, whoa, this is so believable, <laughs> you know, and, and here we are. And and now we're sort of lost in it. It becomes like the you know as near as you can get to the real world. You know, while you know you're a player in a game, but actually, you know, you're also uh, washing this law. Now, what yeah. my my problem over the years has always been that I never get that far because you know I just get overwhelmed with the prep. Okay, so yeah. I've been looking for the way of of building this kind of game where there is going to be this ongoing kind of you know drip 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 drip. It's one of the reasons I created Tiny Prep for myself was because I could allow myself to create lots of little details. Even if it was just a little detail I'm throwing into somewhere, it becomes yeah. a detail I've got. You know, and it's in campaign logger, it's there, something comes, you know, a character name gets thrown up, I've got that character, or you know, some place comes up, oh, I've got something about that. Um, and then as the players investigate, you know, that you hope that you'll you'll add the depth. So so far I'm hearing what you're saying about sketching it out you know and then as they move around you sort of fill in the details um and of course over time because the main thing is over time if you're playing long enough that whole world becomes so rich and deep that actually you know that's what you've achieved what you're after um but i'm wondering is like how best to do that along the way whilst maintaining a sense of this story progression you know it's, and it's that yeah. balance if that makes sense yeah, yeah. i'm definitely after rich deep constant uh, law i guess yeah, yeah, good. A couple of things you mentioned there. So you and I are on the on the same page. Like we want the same thing. So we kind of want that like rock state where mm -hmm. at, around every corner is a cool storytelling moment in in the form of a discovery, a reveal, a twist, but some new detail learned that starts to build up that inventory mm -hmm. uh, for the players. Um, I have a slight different take on it. Instead of being overwhelmed by detail, and this is just my philosophy. I'm not saying this is the way, but. Um, Rather than that, I, I aim for a point where the characters just start to think in world. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I speak. Uh, so if, if none of them understood French at the beginning of the campaign, I would speak in French to such a degree that they start thinking in French themselves by the end of the campaign. And that means you're immersed in French. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And it's not necessarily the burden of detail mm. in that, but the logic of the detail. Yeah. So breaking out the how-to there, um, the first thing is what I call the GM triangle. As a little bit of theory, so I'll try to I'll keep this really short. But the GM triangle to me is uh, the three points that we should aim to achieve in every encounter is system, which is our game mechanics in part, and the house rules and the canon, everything that's been played before that you have to be consistent with. So technically, they're, they're rules. Um, but anyways, that's system. Then there's story. So we've got our five-room dungeons and our plots and whatnot. And then you've got setting, which is the world-building component. Mm -hmm. So if we only have our game exist in one corner, we don't really have a complete tabletop role-playing experience. If mm -hmm. I only have the mechanics, 
then I'm playing tic-tac-toe because tic-tac-toe has no story and there's no setting details around it. They don't have any identities. The X's are just X's. They're not this old uh, dragon faction or Bronze Age. Uh, you've got the Egyptians and uh, rising in the Bronze Age, very powerful uh, superpower at that time. So uh, X's and O's doesn't have any of that detail, which I call legends. If you have pure story, which I call lore, then you're not playing a game. You're just you have an audience. I'm just telling you a great story, which is often sometimes fun, but it's not a game, an RP game, right? Mm-hmm. And then setting. So setting is what provides all the details. It's the stage you build on which to tell the stories through gameplay. Mm-hmm. And my contention is you need components of each of those three to pull off an amazing encounter, every encounter. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily have to have equal parts. GM style is if you can imagine a, a triangle and you put your point into where you think you are. I aim for the center and I my bias is I don't always hit the center, but by aiming for the center, then I have some cool gameplay lined up that's backed by an awesome story layer, the plot of my five room dungeon with some awesome details that support it from my world to make it a believable thing. So that's at the theoretical or abstract level what I try to achieve. Mm-hmm. Now, in campaign preparation mode, the first thing I would do is look at the character sheets, and we've already rated them for treasure ideas. But mm-hmm. I would reskin anything possible off the character sheets to have some setting-based identity and rationale and or, back or background for it. So if I have the climbing skill, mm-hmm. I might leave it as climbing on the character sheet, but I would say, okay, how do you acquire the climbing skill? Who are famous NPCs who have had that climbing skill in the past? What would I call the climbing skill? Maybe, maybe it's um, uh, maybe you're in a uh, so Bronze Age. Maybe it is about um, the legacy, uh, the the history or origin of it is from sea travel because they had heavy Mediterranean sea trade, um, mm-hmm. almost as a as, as a quantities of of modern times because you had the anyways, never mind. So um, so maybe the climb skill <clears throat> is origin story of the um, the seaborne. Uh, sailors, the sailors who would climb the mast and stuff. Mm-hmm. So masting, I don't know if that's a good name or not. It just came off the top of my head. Use ChatGPT for amazing names. Um, but anyway, so now if you start, re- and so skills is kind of a lame example I chose. Skill classes and races, mm-hmm. cultures and species and stuff, those are prime materials. So instead of having elves mm-hmm. in your uh, campaign, rebrand them and, um, and give them uh, your own flavor. So now the characters and the players especially are thinking in world terms. They're thinking not, oh, this is an elf and these mechanics of the elf. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about your history and what the elves are in the world and any details that you've added that make elf gameplay a little bit different than your just default normal system mm-hmm. elf gameplay. So now their character sheet is more of a menu of items to immerse yourself with. So I get to call things by different names now, use the different worlds, uh, the words, and and then so on. And then we talked about the plotting layer of five room dungeons. So. For, for a world building perspective, that's a topic for another time, but I would also want uh, world building. I use a spiral method of world building. Mm-hmm. And so in role playing tips, if you Google that, uh, it says, okay, what are the base things that you need to conduct a game session? So normally you need to know the name of the gods for the clerics and you know you need to know where your money is coming from and how to spend it and what it's called. You need a calendar and some seasons and some dates. Mm-hmm. So. Just that stuff. And then you start building your kingdoms and your your backstories and your history and the world rules uh, behind that. And then ultimately, we want to get to a point where uh, this is an example I used in my workshop the other day. Let's say you design your orcs and call them uh, in my campaign, I call them colossi. So basically, um, if 
if the goblins do enough um, you know, bad stuff, they have this kind of pupae uh, stage. And then after that, they emerge into hobgoblins. And then they can become giants and then titans after that. So that's Colossi. Colossus is the ultimate of their evolution. So, But they're still goblins and, and what. So in my world, if orcs never wear the color of blue, right? It's just against their rituals, their religion, their training, whatever reason I've cooked up in my world that's a single detail, then in the future, if I leave a blue armband behind and the NPCs say orcs did it, I now have what you're looking for. It's not overwhelm of detail. It is mm -hmm. I'm thinking in game world terms. And if I'm a player and I remember that I heard or I knew that orcs did not ever wear the color blue, let's say it was the color of death for them. Mm -hmm. So they only wear blue at funerals. So now this blue armband means either it's not orcs or there's some kind of death funeral uh, thing here. Two details that you did not tell them, but the players put those details themselves. Yeah. And now they are immersed. They are fully in the screen, not mm -hmm. staring. Their eyes are open, looking at the big screen in awe of your GM storytelling. So to execute that, I would you know build the world, build the plots for the um, for the five room dungeons or adventures, whatever adventure building method you want. You just need to know the plotting of that, mm. and then your mechanics have been reskinned as much as possible so that you're not so that you're more immersive in that direction. What I would do then next is for every plot or five room dungeon, I would build a fact table. Mm -hmm. So every encounter is going to have one or more facts that you've got planned. Mm -hmm. So if I know that a dragon is here, I would say, hey, there's a dragon over here. One line, one fact. You can probably get at least five to ten facts out of every five-room dungeon without building it out. You know the location, well, the, the five W's and the two H's. So the who, what, where, when, why, how, and how much. So this five-room dungeon, five W's, two H's, give me five to ten facts for it. Now you've got a long table of, say, D100 facts. That's a column and a table. In your next table... During tiny prep, if you roll this result, turn one fact into a half truth. Mm -hmm. Then tiny prep the next day, you roll again, or maybe your tiny prep is to turn five of your, your rumor tables is what we're effectively creating here. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I call them knowledge tables um, because some of them is, are facts. But anyways, the uh, so your next tiny prep would be um, to turn it into a lie. So now at the end of, at the end of your prep, you've got you know, and 20 to 100 pieces of information about your world that you know to be true. They all have T in parentheses beside them. Uh, then you've got half truths that you could start delivering in the game. And then you've got outright lies for, again, delivering in the game and for especially room threes. Mm -hmm. Finally, in your game, I contend that there's only four things you ever use in the game, like as a game master, as game pieces. So like in Monopoly, you got the Scotty dog, you got community chest cards, and you got the dice, right? So game pieces. Well, I think in that terms, just for facilitating my GMing planning and, and uh, in the game, I, I abstract and I simplify it. And now I just think in game pieces, way easier for my little mind to grasp. Those four game pieces are people, places, things, and events. Mm -hmm. So now I've got 100 facts and I've got that multiplied by two columns. So technically I have 300 pieces of detail about a campaign, but let's just use a... A D12 table to make it easy. Anybody thinks 100 pieces is way overwhelming. I've got 12 facts, 12 half-truths, 12 lies, 36 pieces of information. Each of those needs to be pinned to one of those four things at minimum. So either an NPC knows the fact, the half-truth, or the lie, or they're in a location, which makes it a clue, 
-hmm. or um, they're part of an object. So a magic mouth, an inscription on an item in a, in a, uh, a book mm -hmm. written in a di uh, diary or something. So anyways, the third as the item and then a situation. So a situation is like an event. Maybe there's a war erupts or some kind of uh, an ambush or something happens in the middle of the character's lives. That's an event. The event itself is a source to convey this information. Maybe it rains clues down on the players in a bad clue storm. <laughs> but anyways, um, so pulling all of that together, I think uh, maybe you, you can uh, hear that I do the plot, build, measure, polish, even for this stuff. So my plotting was to reskin my character sheet, do my basic spiral world building, and figure out my five-room dungeons. Then my building was to build out this truth table of, of rumors and what I know about the campaign. And then there's more stuff I can do later with that by connecting the information and also using it as an improv tool. And then the third and final stage was to start applying those, pinning those two areas in my game world as I need in order to know, oh, well, this information can be gleaned here. And now I can send the information to there to glean that information that, and now you're mm -hmm. creating the layers of the onion. And I find that the clearest approach. I'm just focused on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. I do your tiny prep as well. And so I just, oh, tonight, now's the time to polish something or time to build something or time to plot mm -hmm. something is uh, extra items I've added to that. So I just yelled a bunch of words at you. I don't know if they made sense in terms of like actual what you do, but that's literally what I do. I build the thing and polish it later. And I start by just plotting things out. Sounds good. Okay, I'm getting that, I think. That's fine. Okay, so you've been having some time with gyms recently. You've been having some, like, you know, one-to-one -one or small group stuff going on. Um, so what kind of um, fresh insights have kind of been gleaned there? I mean, I, I'm guessing that individuals have challenges that they need to overcome or they've been, you know, there's there's things that they've discovered. So, you know, reveal a couple of things to us and and, and give us, sure. you know, give us the, uh, those pointers. Um, yeah, a bit of background on that. So especially during COVID, I took some online training. And before then, I took some online courses as well uh, for professional reasons. Uh, and some of them were actually uh, RPG related. And my experience for most of them was, and some of them were quite expensive, was that I got recordings of lectures thrown over the fence at me. Mm -hmm. And then the um, instructor would ghost. And so yeah. there would be no community and no way to ask questions and whatnot. And so I yeah. thought, wow, this is a really poor experience. Am I doing this to my own uh, game masters who buy my courses and stuff? So I thought, okay, well, how do I solve this? And then a workshop, I attended a workshop and I said, this is the experience that I want game masters, role-playing tips game masters to have. So I've switched to doing workshops. And what that means is in real time, we go through one step of my recipe, whatever we're building at one at a time, we then talk about the, we share what we just created for critiques and for you know the polish and the ideas and stuff and to confirm uh, that you've done it right. So it's not a, it's a classroom setting, but it's like an actual workshop. We actually, mm. and so the benefit to me uh, as the, as the facilitator there is I get to see where they have their gaps and friction points and where I've made assumptions. This is especially important to me and gaps in my teaching. I didn't realize that this was, and so this real time feedback has been such a huge boon for me. For example, mm. a common trap that game masters have is that they're really passionate about a particular outcome. Quite often, we might get an idea of a cool twist, for example. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if the villain was actually the, the father of the hero? What an amazing thing. And now we're fixated on that, and we design specifically towards that. And then when it hits the table, the players go left at Albuquerque, and 
you're 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 caught you're caught off guard you're flat-footed or on the back foot you're reeling you're trying you're now a couple of steps behind trying to catch up improvise what are you going to do you're going to force them to do this so you're going to just go with it and just improv like mad and figure out how you'll get your thing and it's just because we're so passionate about a particular idea and so um that's one insight is yeah. how often we game masters put the blinders on and don't yeah. consider what the players might do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in my in my Star Wars campaign, you know, Darth Vader would get one in the head. Um <laughs> right away. You, you know what I mean? And not to get to deliver the line, right? <laughs> yeah. Luke, I am your <laughs> <laughs> I am your dinner at that point. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and so that's just uh cognitive dissonance but it's i think just being human we we have mm -hmm. this really exciting moment we are, want our players to share won't it be amazing for our players they'll like yell and drop the dice and stand up and put their hands up, no way and all that mm -hmm. but chances of actually that idea coming out are very small in reality mm -hmm. we rarely so if your your players are like mine they're guessing ahead of time what the twists are not because they're trying to ruin my fun but they're trying to puzzle out the what to do next and how to win right so they've already guessed my twist a long time ago. So even if that twist comes about and they didn't know for sure, the energy is half, uh, the the half-life of that is expired because they've already seen that and, and encountered that possible. So I put far less emphasis on those surprise type of twists and more like short-term twists. Uh, and I try to put a twist in many of my encounters now. So each encounter has a twist, which is, uh, back to your earlier point, how do you get that immersion going in your in your campaign? Mm -hmm. Well, in the rock theory, every encounter should have a little bit of a gotcha, some lore drop, some kind of new way that they see the world or their current situation, that that twist. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, one thing. Uh, so another one is how uh, game, different game masters have different brains. And so we know this from psychology and from a variety of other sources, but it's all, you know, discovery for me. So there's one book out there. I can't remember. Daniel Kahneman. I, I don't know. Think mm -hmm. slow thinking and fast thinking, mm -hmm. I think. Or is thinking fast and thinking slow. Yeah. The intuitive mm -hmm. thinkers versus the kind of more process. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and they're both good. Uh, it's just the intuitive thinkers let their mouth react. And the slow thinkers will um, process it and then look mm -hmm. at the angles and then come up with some response later. Um, well, imagine to my... Um, uh, surprise how that game masters have these different mentalities and there is absolutely nothing right or wrong about each mentality it's just wait a minute if i'm only putting out there in the world how i think and react and do mm -hmm. things i'm not helping a whole swath of game masters be successful because my way of doing things is generally that intuitive reaction thing and then pay mm -hmm. the consequences later yeah so what about the slow thinkers? And, and and what about those who are heavy into world building or those who, who are really heavy in storytelling in that triangle mm -hmm. or those who really love the war game aspect and want the you know, combat? Mm -hmm. And so the workshop for me has revealed that we as game masters have different ways of thinking than our fellows, our fellow mm -hmm. game masters. So that means when I go online and I see that a game master is saying, okay, well, I do things this way or this is the only way to do things or this way is wrong. It's like, no, no, there's so many different brains out there and brain types. And so um, I learned uh, to just uh, not be so this way is the way. So mm. you, I outlined my way for you moments ago. Um, that's because I'm good at lists. I like having things in tables. So 
another type of game master should turn all of that into mind maps because they're heavy on the visual. Another one might want to write it in prose and write pages and pages of prose, which in the past I've said, don't waste your time. <laughs> but I've learned there was actually a, um, a game master. I say when I, there's actually a game master that kind of puts them in a corner. But I met a person of the many who are out there who actually needs to write prose mm. to help their thinking process. And so I tried that myself. Wait a minute, that works for them. Maybe it would work for me too. And when I did it, I wrote an encounter. Usually it's like an encounter is like five bullet points and the rest mm -hmm. is improv. Um, or little tiny details I add during your amazing tiny prep uh, method. Um, but by writing, I had a lot more detail that I could draw on for puzzle creation and for storytelling and stuff by the prose. Because the prose makes you, the sentences make you fill in the blanks for mm -hmm. nouns and verbs quite a bit. Um, so that was another insight is that, I won't say we all think differently, but there are many, many different ways to think. And so that means mm -hmm. your players will think differently. And so now I have way more empathy for my players at the table. If I'm asking for a decision in combat at the at a at a player and they're taking their time, and I, I could try to do the finger countdown trick to pressure them, or maybe I should step back and say, are they just the um, process-oriented thinker? And I just need to give them a little bit of time. And then I could think, well, is there anything I could give them far in advance so then they can do that. So then maybe they're more ready. So maybe I give them the top seat in initiative every round, but just for a few details. So then when they come to their turn, they'll have thought through those details and now they're ready. So anyways, those are the two insights um, that I've, uh, two of the insights that I've gleaned from the workshop. Um, and then they're both humbling. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I mean, I, you know, conscious of time, but I wanted to um, just reflect back to you something. I, I was going through some stacks of books today and I'm in the process of decluttering my entire gaming collection. Yes, so me too. Yes. Stuff's going and tries. Anyway, in the pile, I found, I printed the office from years ago. I mean, I don't know how many years, maybe it's 15 or 20 years ago. But I printed off a copy of the Faster Combat. Um, oh, right, yeah. Book. Uh, Faster Combat um, course that you'd put out many, 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 many years ago. Um, yeah. There was a kind of a, a series, uh, like a book or something that had come as a product from that. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, I seem to remember there being a whole bunch of videos that I'd watched, much as you'd spoken about before. And then that this kind of like guide, which obviously I hadn't touched for like years. Um, and I dug it out and dusted it off. And I was like, just flipping through today. Um, and I guess what I wanted to ask was like, in all of that, you know, you started with those kinds of courses way, 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 way back when. Um, how have you found those received? And how over time have you sort of adapted with that kind of stuff? Uh, I'm just curious, really. Yeah, yeah, interesting question. Yeah, thanks. So Faster Combat I developed in um, in partnership or in collaboration with another blogger, uh, Tony Medeiros. He was mm -hmm. a, a great D&D blogger at the time. And so we co-developed that. And then since then, I've, I've uh, penned Faster Combat 5e uh, with another collaborator. I've created an adventure hacking course. Uh, mm -hmm. that, or Sorry, not an adventure hacking course. A um, What is it? What's the third one called? Oh, boy. Anyway, so I've created some follow-up courses to more flesh out the mm -hmm. ideas. Um, in general, my courses are very well received. Mm. Uh, just from the perspective of that, I tackle topics that aren't broken down into step-by-step -step actions. Usually um, what drives me uh, for a course is not finding the how to do it. I can only find what it is and what to do. So, hey, John, you should plot, build, and polish your adventures. Great. How do I exactly do that? Do I need to make a truth table with uh, entries from every five-room dungeon and blah, blah? 
Um, so that's how I create my courses, do this and then this mm -hmm. and then this and then this. So mm -hmm. for that reason, um, I have received a lot of uh, positive emails. And so based on that and um, comments in either the, the course community area or on Discord. Mm -hmm. So uh, based on that feedback, I'm evaluating that the courses are very well received. Um, and so I generally uh, would do a course and then turn it into a book because uh, the course would help me think things through, structure things and communicate. And then I would put it to the hard task of 100,000 words or 80,000 words or whatever. So um, that's good. Now I've added the new layer to it, sort of my anti-AI hedge as a business as well. Um, in theory, you can't replace a human with AI. There's something special about me. There's something special about you. And that's why I yeah. want you as my dungeon master, Shay, and so on. So um, the... I don't know, like the, the John factor, if you will uh, call it in, in any given campaign. So anyways, uh, I'm not doing these workshops, which are live in real time, because now I'm seeing in real time where they don't get something. I'm getting a lot of questions about this technique. Oh, great. That means I didn't explain it well, or I've missed a step in the process, perhaps. And then we work it out and then it's done. And now I'll take that and I'll make a course for it for those who prefer courses. Mm -hmm. And then I'll turn it into some kind of document for those who like the, the written page and possibly an audio version if they like to listen to such things. So that's my current kind of multi-step uh, to deliver information. Um, but I like the workshop stage first because I get to real GMs give me feedback on whether I'm mm -hmm. full of BS or not. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the courses, um, I've developed adventure courses, organization courses, and combat, which is a big one. Um, anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot of combat. Like that combat is, is still available, but regardless of where you get your combat advice from, there's something that just doesn't make sense to me that seems to be prevalent. Uh, prevalent. For example, there's mm -hmm. one that's um, uh, just use average damage. So if I just use average damage, I get the benefit of not having to do any math in my head. So that could be a plus. It's a negative yeah. for me because you see from the gray hairs we talked about, I want the practice and gaming mm -hmm. keeps our brain sharp. But anyways, sure, fewer numbers flying around, um, and it saves whatever your your uh, calculation time is. Let's say it's five seconds, because five seconds are a long time. When you, if you save five seconds off of a turn, is that going to make a dent? Whereas if you think about combat design, if you use your design layer, which is your plot layer, to build a fast combat, then those little tricks that I see everywhere, which can be effective, but aren't actually going to make a dent if your goal is faster combat. So my claim for that course is half the time and twice the story. But whatever you're looking for to improve your combat, um, yeah, just beware. And encountering and you know actually getting this real-time feedback with uh, GMs, I'm seeing sometimes where my advice is weak and not making that much of a difference. Like I have in faster combat, uh, it's not if you can roll all your dice at once and or use average. It, those shave maybe two minutes off of the, your total combat. You want to look for the things that can cut you down by a an hour. If you have four-hour combat, <laughs> by two hours or more. So um, anyways, I, that was a little tangent. Um, I think the question is still relevant. I'm not seeing a lot of good advice out there that actually fundamentally changes your speed and story of, structure, of combat. You're playing little dice games and stuff, which I don't think will have an impact. Yeah, I mean, it, interesting thing about that sort of advice as well is that it flattens the experience. You know, I remember, um, so I remember I used, when I first played 5e, um, I used the average, you know, you've got, you've got like fixed X kind of hit points, haven't you, for every creature. So you know that they can take X number of hits, basically, 
and it's kind of easy. I mean, that's easy to track, right? But it's yeah. flat as a combat experience. You know, you play that a few times over. Um, players very, very quickly kind of get become bored. I mean, it's actually what happened to us with fourth edition. We just yes, became yeah. bored of it. it. It's not like it's a bad game. It was just like the way in which that was structured just became so flat as an experience. You know, and one of the things I like is a, the, the sort of the uncertainty, you know, that actually, and I mean, talk about playing with GURPS, but, you know, with that game, every character is very, very vulnerable. And one, you know, there's a lot of sweet, you know, like to and fro and, you know, in, in fighting, but one decent hit and you're out of it. So don't get clobbered. And, and that's sort of in itself, you know, that's exciting. That's spicy. You know, like you don't know um, yeah. if someone's going to roll really well with their damage and suddenly take someone down um, or whether it's going to be like another glancing hit that doesn't really do much at all. But phew, I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad they missed. I'm like, glad that went, went off my helmet or whatever it was, you know. Um, yeah. You lose all of that richness. And I think there's story richness there. You know, what I love about... What I love about the opposed die rolling systems is that, you know, okay, I'm going to roll here. You're going to try and parry or block or whatever. We get this narrative back and forth going. Now, that's slower to a lot of people's minds. But um, for me, it's like a spicier, richer flavor, right? So, um, and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with either as such, apart from what I want at the table, which is, you know, spice um, and risk. I agree with all your points there. I, in faster combat, I say that it's more about the perception of time that dictates yeah. whether your combat is slow or not, to your point. And the, mm. and the silly joke I make is it depends on which side of the bathroom door you're on, how fast time goes. Yeah. So if you're on the wrong side, that one minute that you're hopping around can feel like 10 minutes or an hour, mm. uh, metaphorically speaking. So if your combat has those story moments, but it takes longer in real time, it could still feel like a fast, exciting combat. And your average damage, there's some positives to that. So if players know that this uh, uh, goblin is going to deal four points of damage to me every time, well, then I can get my uh, wargaming hat on and I can do some cool things with that. But on the con side is it takes a lot of drama out of the game. For example, in just channeling what you were putting down there, Mm. if I roll to hit and now I say, okay, you've been hit. Now we've got that mystery loop, the gap of tension. Am I going to get hit a lot and go down Mm -hmm. or am I going to get, you know, am I going to survive this? Mm -hmm. So now we have your storytelling ability as a game master, as a human in the moment. How are you going to handle that? So one way to handle it is, okay, where's my D4? This guy does D4 damage plus one. Oh, there's my D4. (laughs) I've got it. Okay. I rolled a four. Okay. You take three points of damage, right? Boring as as heck. It's okay. This guy's mighty swing. It looks like it's a hard connection. I'm going to roll my dice here. Oh no. Four points of damage, right? You can you can make storytelling happen even with the dice rolls. And that's actually how I try to use the dice in uh, the combat. Mm-hmm. And then what I said before, it's um, I think your the brilliance of combat comes from your your design of it, not from the little uh, mm-hmm. dice hacks. Though those can have huge like if you were terrible, maybe you're dyslexic or something. You're just not good at rolling dice and and adding damage and stuff. I'm not saying it's yeah. So I'll, I'll put the usual uh, caveat in there. But if you're um, if you're uh, designing combat, what I do now is I decide, okay, how important are these guys? Are these one-shots or two-shot um, minions? And I stole mm-hmm. this from 4th edition. That's why I remembered it yeah. as you brought it up. So when I design the combat now, I decide, okay, well, how many hits is it going to take to win this combat with at the MOOC layer? And then I don't care how many hit points I give them. I give them enough so that I know there's one shot to take down or two shots to take down. Mm-hmm. Some players will pick up on that, but it doesn't matter at that point. It's not that they know there's exactly five hit mm-hmm. points in these things or whatever, the average hit points, average damage. It's more that they know, okay, I can probably one clock 
this guy, this guy on my turn, giving me a clear route to the villain. And then mm -hmm. the villain is an unknown black box. So yeah, I think the design has a huge impact on, on, um, as per your example. I think um, just to wrap that one up, I think the biggest thing you gave me with um, fast combat was the idea of, you know, how long does it take you to do things at the table? Um, and it's yeah. something that's really stuck. I, um, Recently, was putting together a sort of fat, like very simple GURPS game. Um, wanted to have character creation in about 15, 20 minutes with GURPS. So we we hacked that down to like literally down to rolling random dice to start with stats and kind of like loads of other little things. It just made it really quick. You know, essentially, like nice. taking drawing from old D and D kind of inspirations just to get a game going. Um, but then I was playing in a, another game of a, a apparently rules light system where it took about 40 minutes to make characters. And one of the interesting thing for me is, as a player in that moment was like thinking this apparently rules light game has just taken a group of us like 40, 45 minutes to make our characters where, you know, there's basically about like five or six decisions to make or something. Now what happened there? Uh, and it's not like it was bad because I had a really good time in that 40, 45 minutes, right? So the, you know, come back to your point about the perception of time, you know, it didn't matter. But I was just kind of, I've always have an eye now as gem to the clock. So um, I think it's really interesting to sort of note on, like you said, that the experience you're having in that time, as well as the time that's going is, is kind of what's key. When you have a two and a half hour gang session, if you spent 45 minutes of it making characters and you're trying to do a one shot, that might be an issue. You know, I don't know. And it's something you want to be mindful of, right? But at the same time, when I when I've got um I've got a couple of hours to play and I can get if I can get that that bit done and get us into play really quickly, um yes. without with it being less painful for people, um, Good you course. know, that that's a bonus, right? That's what you're after. And I think like again with the baggage, my my favorite game system, GURPS hands with get baggage that people imagine that this is an amazingly difficult game to get into and really hard to make characters with, which is I'm increasingly finding not true depends on how you do it um but you know again it comes down to design it comes down to as a GM what what what's the experience I want my players to have how do I design for that um and uh you know it's like with this game I'm starting we're going to go with a narrative character creation process which will be yeah, cool. you know sort of steps through their early history building the characters kind of some of the key experiences and role-playing little scenes that give us yeah. a sense of the character and then go away build that for them and then and we're into play but you know it's about giving them a, a different experience of play that takes away the the stuff that we find difficult or boring you know yeah <laughs> that's awesome it would help me as a player i get stuck when i'm handed a character sheet i have to play the character for two or three sessions i guess i'm a slow thinker as a player your system, though, it sounds like I could get into character a lot faster because it's less about, okay, what does this um, plus one strength and this list of mm -hmm. skills do for me as a, as a role player? If I get to play out scenes of my character's backstory and stuff, I'm already in his shoes or their shoes for a while before I uh, start the actual campaign. Yeah, that sounds like a very cool system. Yeah, it's like you're, you're seven years old and your best mate's just being beaten up by the, by the bully at school. What do you yes. do? Yeah. You know, and now what my do you character do? is full of story. Yeah, yeah and we it. can have, and we can do a little scene around that, and that tells us something about your character. Um, and I don't know, you know, depending on what you do, maybe that shapes what we put on the sheet. You Absolutely. know, um, yeah. you know, you're 11 years old, and your sister's just been like, assaulted, um, you know, and dragged away, but and kidnapped or something. Um, you know, what do you do? Do you go to the cops? Yeah. Do you go looking for yourself? Do you, you know, what do you, you know, and and I get, don't you know, whatever, but 
the point is that we immerse you immediately in story and situation. And of course, if we really wanted to, we could even resolve some of that using our game mechanisms and teach the player a little bit how to play as well. You know, yes, uh, I don't know exactly what your stats are, but you know, we can imagine, right? Okay, roll some dice for me. You know, off we go. Um, yeah. And I, I, I found that really immersive and really engaging. You know, and then it's easy for me once we've gone through a few sort of scenes like that. You know something about the character. You also can start saying to the player right do you, so do you see you obviously see yourself as strong rather than fast or smart you know rather than you know strong or whatever it is yes. um and we've we've established that you know a few of these sorts of skills you know what else do you think your character knows about you know and we can throw those in and, and it becomes sort of this to and fro um and it gets me away from that totally random character whom i'm tempted never to invest in really yeah the orphan yeah but it also gets me away from this. I've got to sit down with my my 150 points and spend them <laughs> uh, approach. You know, um, yeah. So Love yeah, it. I would like to hear a lot more detail on this from you in the future. Um, it's a really cool sounding GM technique, and I've not I've not executed that ever well. And like I've done a couple of montages and gave the characters mm -hmm. sort of um, left right choices. We weren't rolling because I needed to control an outcome. Like the character couldn't die. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, the current day we would have no character. Um, I would love to hear about that from you. I'll have to do some episodes on it or something or, or blog or whatever. Yeah, that's sure. Great. And then on the on the note of GURPS, I love GURPS. Um, I've not played it in many, many years. Um, what I like about GURPS, if anybody is hearing bad things about it or on the fence, is I really like the action economy. It is a fair action economy, mm -hmm. and it's easy to adjudicate uh, in my recollection as a GM and as a player. Um, I played sci-fi and, um, and fantasy in GURPS. Um, no modern so but the, the rules are the same per genre which is brilliant uh the other thing is that is actually a game of averages because it's a mm -hmm. it's a heavily curved game as the 3d6 system yep. so you, in any given time you're going to always you can count on rolling in the middle of the curve and you look at the exceptions uh, and give those the story weight mm -hmm. um so I, ironic that i just berated or or downplayed the average uh technique to speed <laughs> up combat whereas gurps kind of thrives on that but it has it has the rules and as a game master and mechanisms to make those seventeen, eighteen, and and three and four rolls uh, really memorable. Um, but yeah, good game. If anybody's on the fence, I heartily recommend it. No, it's good. All right, yeah. thank you, Question John. For That's you, cool. actually, because you this is the second time you've tried to wind down and you cannot escape. Okay. Uh, just a quick question. So you told me that you're running GURPS and uh, and a Bronze Age campaign. And um, I've just studied up in the last year or so um, on the Bronze Age, just because I like uh, YouTube mm -hmm. history videos. Are you going to have the Sea Peoples in your campaign, or is it more like a fictional universe inspired uh, by the Bronze Age? Okay, so it's more the latter, because what I just, I mean, the guys, when we were talking about, they want to do, what do you want to do on a Saturday night? Uh, we want to play, we want to play some fantasy, and we've got players who like like lower-powered, lower, lower fantasy as well, like less magic, less... You know, all of that, less Shazam, more sort of grounded feel. And so that suits the the system because GURPS is really grounded. Reality yeah, nice. sort of is a baseline and, you know, build on what you want. It's very modular. Um, and they said that, you know, Bronze Age is cool. So, you know, in GURPS terms, that's tech level, technological level one. Um, and, you know, we were thinking about Greek inspired, but, you know, and that's sort of where we left it. And then I went home uh, or got home, you know, sort of sat down around here and, um, I'll show you that I'll get this. Sure. Um, so what I'm showing John is a copy of um, Griffin Mountain, which was published for Inquest Second Edition, 
Okay. Um, and this is the 2018 reprint of that, which was done by Moon Design Publications. Now, Glorantha, as you will know, is uh, the the world for RuneQuest. And when I started gaming in 1977, I played Traveller. 1980, I got RuneQuest second edition. I'm obsessed with my dad got it and I stole it off him when he didn't like it. And I got obsessed with the map at the back. And, yeah. you know, and it, the game of, you know, the BRP-based system was great and a lot of fun. But I could never bring it to the table. My friends weren't interested in in that kind of game. And so having had this conversation with the players, I was then like I, looking through the stacks and, and and you know, I just remembered this particular campaign book. It has a map as an area called Balazar. And essentially what you've got is a bunch of prehistoric sort of late prehistoric neolithic kind of uh, culture of hunters and they are surrounded by a world that is essentially bronze age and very very mythic and magical and their territories are being invaded by those bronze age warriors the lunar empire and um it just struck me as like this is so cool because it's so mythic i mean greg stafford stuff is he's the great mythologist of role-playing right he was the guy who's really into sort of the gods and goddesses and i really like his rich animistic world and the spiritual element to it and it's really cool and then he's got all these wonderful creatures and recasting of, of different stuff and i decided i'll steal the map and i'm going to use the book but the problem with glorantha now and no disrespect to everyone who loves what chaosium is doing right now but it's so nailed down like there are like like for the gods, they're about to publish ten books for 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 the GMs and players to read on all of the cults and all of the gods yeah. and everything Front else. Round level of you know. detail you have to adhere to. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable amount of detail. And of course, whenever I play with a RuneQuest player who's been playing for a long while, there's a canon. <laughs> there's a canon that they want to play with. And and what I've decided to do is unlock my inner like ten year old or nine year old as I was in 1980, who saw the map and went, "Whoa, cool." Yeah. Um, and instead, what I'm going to do is use the stuff and use the law that was published from the 80s and sort of launch my own game from that, really, and sort of take the maps and take some of the key kind of stuff in it, some of the uh, take the deities, and you've got all sorts of stuff and information, but then just sort of riff off it um, with the players, you know? Love it. Um, and decided, I'll, I, whilst I love BRP, I decided, I'd, no, I'm really trying to master GURPS. So let's just do it with GURPS. And I was stripping out everything that um, sort of you know, makes it uh, super magical because Glorantha is super, super magical. So I just decided to like take that element down, focusing on the spiritual, the animistic world and the yeah, gods nice. and the goddesses as cults. And there will be magic, but it's going to be a lot more subtle probably. Um, and in some of the monsters and other things like that. And this kind of legendary mythic world. And it's that for me, it's a blending between this sort of very grounded rule system, this very rich described law and world that I can kind of riff off of. And then with that sort of a methodology that we're using as players, which is around kind of trying to focus them on their character in world and, and marrying the player and the and the character's perspective a little bit more. So yeah, they're nice. gonna play they're gonna play these kind of like late Neolithic balazerings, the um uh, kind of hunters and and of course they're just like you i'm going to play them as youths and they don't really know much about the world and so the characters don't know much about the world and they're going and discovering the players are going to get taken along with that and over time you know they will enter this much more dangerous sort of bronze age culture uh, and make of it what they will probably steal from it and loot it and all sorts of stuff like that 
and and that's what I'm going for. That's the sort of game I'd like to offer, which I think sounds pretty exciting. Um, and I'm at the I'm honestly right now at the point of like creating that campaign. So our conversation has been so timely; it's it's wonderful. So awesome. does that answer your question? It does. Yeah, yeah. I really um, like that. Uh, just before COVID, the uh, last thing I'll say: just before COVID, I was getting a little bit burnt out on five E. I've been playing mm-hmm. it since 2015, so a nice five year run. And um, what specifically though, because I was chatting with Mike. Uh, over at Sly Flourish, and he, I was telling him about my burnout and this and that. And it's just, I'm, I'm a bit burned out on what I call um, shopping mall D and D, where you go to the store, you buy your magic items with your treasure yep. and stuff. And the Bronze Age is really cool. It's historic. It'll be low mm-hmm. gritty fantasy, and or or historical uh, genre. And then um, that simplicity, not having that kind of four color fantasy layer on top, that simplicity really appeals to me. So that mm-hmm. sounds like an excellent campaign you've got. Yeah, well, I will hope so. I mean, my problem as a GM is always like any longevity because I'm a complete butterfly head. I'm ADHD. I don't ever stick with, you know, it's very hard for me to stick with things. I have to have this ongoing, constant engagement with the thing I'm running. So if, if I've got a biweekly game, which is where it's going to be run, you know, if we get any interruption to that, that, that biweekly thing, that can be a real risk for me. And that's why, you know, I invented tiny, well, the tiny prep stuff, which came from studying, you know, tiny habits uh, by bj fogg which is an absolutely phenomenal book that everyone should read um but you know that that idea of how can i create a small habit that over time hopefully will grow um and that's that's really been helpful because even even though my games still sort of fall over you know from that at least i'm building more consistent habits and i find that if my habits are built around the same world the same campaign and again it gains legs and it gains kind of uh, momentum so absolutely yeah. the the details of uh civilization stack in your uh your mm-hmm. campaign uh and five room dungeons are perfect uh not perfect but are a potential tool for, if you have adhd or just don't <laughs> like some gms just dislike fall out of love with their ideas after a while and so five room dungeons and or five story beat arcs uh also can help with that just plan the next sequence the next season if you will See if you're still passionate about it after you've GM'd it. Yeah, nice. Excellent. Thank you. That's where we're at anyway. So that's good. All right. So I guess we ought to wrap up now. <laughs> but thank you, John, for your time. It's been awesome to talk to you. And, you know, I'm really curious to find out how you get on with your, um, you know, with your workshops and everything else that you're doing at the moment. It sounds fantastic. Um, you know, where do people find you if they want to find you? What's the Where do they look you up? Uh, roleplayingtips.com. So roleplaying tips tips.com and i'm giving my five room dungeons book away currently for free um you can pay twenty dollars uh, for it on drive through if you like but you can get the pdf at no charge uh, at my site and you can see what the technique is is all about you know, thanks for allowing me the plug there no no worries at all that's what it's about like check out john's stuff because he's been awesome been doing it for what an eye on what is it 30 years or something 25 years 1999 was the go. first issue november 1999 i don't know how that works out into uh dog years but um <laughs> it's still a ton of fun yeah no, absolutely fantastic right we're gonna leave it there thanks john yeah thanks john. and that's it a big thank you once again to john from roleplayingtips.com for coming and sharing his experience and thoughts and ideas and tips and amazing amounts of stuff really i'll stick a link to role-playing tips in the show notes please do go and check it out if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear from you call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplay rescue as usual thanks again to all the roleplay rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpg rescue 
And of course, thank you also to John from Tell of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and if you made it all the way through, listening to John and I witter on. I hope you found it useful. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.